welcome to another episode of Knife Making Down Under podcast. We have our usual crew with us. We have Mert Tansu from Tansu Knives. We've got Corin Urquhart from Gamaco and Artisan Supplies. Fellas, how's it all going? It's going good, man. How you been? I've been good. I've got nothing to complain about. You sure? Well, I do, but I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> I've got plenty to complain about. <laughs> How are you going, Corin? Uh, yeah, look, I've had uh, two. Oh, got a funeral this afternoon, and I had one last week. So, you know, it's all been a bit flat, but you know, that's the cycle of life. Yes, unfortunately, so I've had a. We had the similar sort of thing at the end of last year, and a really good mate of mine just lost his grandma and his mother within about a week of each other. Um, so, so same thing, mate. Just that sort of fuck things have got to get better feeling, don't they? <laughs> That's it. At the end of the day, um, you know, both of these guys had li- lived pretty long lives and, you know, one had been sick for six years with cancer. So, you know, it's, yeah. you know, what do you say? Well, that's it, mate. What do you say? You can't really do much about it, can you? And the other guy passed away, just stood up from the lounge and collapsed and died. So if you're going to go, that'd probably be a better choice. But Well, yeah, to be honest with you, I'd probably go like that, rather go like that myself than a long period of suffering from a something like cancer or whatever. No, absolutely. Anyway, that's no good, mate. So you've got to look after yourself when these things happen. Um, what do you guys? What do you guys been up to since the last time we did a recording? Which seems like forever ago, but it wasn't that long ago. A friend of mine from school, her daughter wants to be a blacksmith, and her father passed away oh, six months ago maybe, yeah, six months ago, and she's sort of a bit lost at the moment. She's 15, 16, so I've uh, offered to give her some lessons. So she's been coming down, and we've been doing tools to make tools, so she's building up a toolbox. She's made a punch, the drift, the flatter, the fullers, top fuller, bottom fuller, hammer eye punch. She made basically every, oh, cupping tool. She's made everything now except for the hammer, so she'll be coming down this weekend to make uh, to make the hammer. Yeah, awesome. That's, that's uh, absolutely awesome. Yeah, she's doing all right. She's coming to the symposium too. Yeah, oh, cool. Nice. Very good. What have you been up to, Matt? Oh, well, speaking of the symposium, I'll be teaching two classes. One of them being, being the semi and the other one is stainless class, stainless heat treatment class. Now I'm just going over my stainless heat treatment notes because semi, I do it constantly and I've done a lot of semi courses. So I explain this thing over and over. So I got my spiel pat down so I can, I can just start it and do <clears> it and it's easy, but... I understand stainless steel heat treatment, but I need to be explaining a lot more elaborately rather than uh, just heat it up and yeah, shit happens and it's it's hard. I need to be able to I need to be able to explain in a lot better ways than so people who are paying good money for it can ask good questions and I have the right technical terminology correct and all the answer rather than saying yeah when you do that knife goes shit. So I can explain the, which forms of Martin's site and that happens. So I'm just going over my notes and reading a lot of Verhoeven, one of the best sources for the uh, heat treatment. So studying. Yeah. So you're doing the advanced stream, aren't you? I believe so. Yeah. 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 I've got I've got two streams on the beginner front, and I like doing that because uh, I'm very much used to teaching the beginners. So I'm going to do designs blade types and methods um, which I'll probably use the, I've got to download it and get my head around it a little bit uh, the software from Bjorn 
as, as one of the new little, that sort of CAD version for knife makers. So I'm going to download that and have a crack at that. Uh, very similar to another program I've used, so hopefully too much to take in. Plus then, you know, bring bring along the French curves and rulers and all that sort of other stuff that I have for the design element. Grinds, I'll probably just mostly talk about the different types of grinds on things. And if I've got a grinder available, I'll jump on and show people some methods of, of getting the grinds done. The other one I'm doing is um, guards and handles. And again, just for the sort of beginner side of things, trying to keep it simple, but solid information to get people started out and then they can progress as they go. But I can't give too much away because we've got 90 minutes to talk about these things, don't we? Yeah, that's it. Yes, we do. I got one this year as well. I'm doing knife making materials and equipment. So <laughs> for a beginner stream. Are you qualified Sorry. for that? <laughs> <laughs> Colin, I, I heard yours. Yeah, yours was like, okay, guys, this is the website. I'm done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Funnily enough. Can I get a volunteer from the audience? Okay, log in. Now let's start putting shit in your car. Right, check out. Look, that was easy. <laughs> Next. You're such a dickhead. <laughs> I've done heat treating before. I've got my notes from that still. I did heat treating probably three years ago. I've done forge building. I've done knife making materials and equipment, which was a session at all the first symposiums. Oh, well, at least the second and third. The first one I wasn't at. But anyway, the symposium, guys, it's huge. So uh, by the time this comes out, uh, it'll be right on the doorstep. I believe they've got, if they haven't got a full house, they're very close. So. Yeah, I think as of yesterday, they had two or three spaces left. As of this morning, it's full and they're into waiting list, I think. They've got 70 taken. Awesome. Oh, good. Awesome. One of the other things I've been up to was uh, a, a pretty cool uh, little project that I got a phone call about. I had this random phone call from uh, a fella and he's asking about, you know, can I repair swords? Uh, you instantly just think, oh, man, where's this coming from? And it was funny on that particular day because um, I'd been out in my yard. It was about 39 degrees. I spent four hours out in the yard, got fried like a bloody crispy chicken. I had about 10 phone calls that day from assholes trying to sell me fucking solar systems and all the rest of it. So at the end of the day, the phone rang and I was trying to get the chainsaw started. So I was really abruptly, yeah, you know what, Kev. <laughs> and this guy's like, uh, uh is this Kev from Kev's Forge? Like, straight back into professional life. Oh, yeah, g'day, mate, how are you? <laughs> so anyway, yeah, he asked me about, could I repair a sword? And I was like, oh, here we go. Um, and as it happens, he was from um, the New South Wales Police Armoury, and they had a um, quite an old sword, uh, quite an old sword. I think Mert and I looked it up, and it was a 1853... Um, uh, what was it? 1853 pattern cavalry sword. sword. Yeah. Um, and it was it was a victim of what they called tent pegging, so that the the old officers used to ride along on their horses and try and cut ropes off tent pegs and stuff. And the end of this thing had hit it and snapped it and bent it. And uh, so I got some photos. Told the fella, I'd yeah, I'll look, send it down to me, and I'll be honest with you. If I can't fix it, I'll let you know. Because there's a piece of history you sort of you don't want to run the gauntlet on it too much. So, yeah, this thing arrived and uh, pulled it out, and it was in reasonably shitty condition. <laughs> you took your bench grinder out? Yeah, and, well, <laughs> I had to do some of that um, percussive straightening that Rodrigo showed us. 
where you, where you just sit there tapping with a hammer for bloody ages and it finally comes and straightens out. Um, so straighten her up. And then I had to download uh, a picture of the actual um, tip of one of those swords and then um, reshape it, regrind it, and, you know, sand it back to the level they had. They'd already done a little bit of a clean-up uh, of the actual sword itself. And I just did the top, so uh, the tip of it. So that was pretty cool fun. So sent it back. I uh, sent it back a text message with the photos, saying I'd already done it. And uh, yeah, that's getting shipped off this afternoon, and it's going to be displayed in the New South Wales Police Armoury um, cabinet at their massive display full of swords and guns and knives and shit. So that was something that very much out of the ordinary, which I was pretty cool, pretty happy to be a part of. Kev, did you send the sword to Dar for etching? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's got a, somewhere on that sword, it's got a bloody 164th dick on it. <laughs> ah, armory guys, you might yeah. wanna, you might wanna, you might wanna explain what the thing with the Dar is. He's laser etching. Yeah, Dar, armory guys, if you're listening to this, it didn't really happen. But uh, <laughs> at the Sydney show, uh, Dar does this thing of, or the first year he did this thing of laser etching this really tiny penises on stuff that people gave them. Um, he, he, with the angry wombat, he told him, I think it was his pocket knife, that there was one on there, and he searched and searched and searched, and Dar actually hadn't done it. And then I think by the time I got to Dar the next day and I just wanted to get it done on a, a little ruler for my classes, um, I think I was like number 60 or something that he'd had done that day. And then the following year, last year, I think he was doing um, titties, boobs, breasts, Bazongas, leaving. How old is that? How old is that? About 12. Okay. <laughs> he's, trapped, he's just trapped in an old man's body. <laughs> well, I think he was doing it this uh, last year. I think he did the breasts on the stuff to raise money for um, breast cancer research or something. So we'll get the whole we'll get the whole gambit going on there. Soon he'll do brains for brain cancer and you know other bits and pieces on there. So you'll have a whole etched body on your whatever you want. It all started with, I think it was Tobal, Jason Waitman, he's a journeyman smith. He made a beautiful Damascus knife for one of his best friends and then took it over to fucking Dar and had an enormous dick laser engraved on it. And that was where it all started. People realised you could use this thing for evil. (laughs) (laughs) Who would have thought that, huh? Yeah. Well, you know, I've got myself a Glowforge, which is a laser etching engraver machine. Uh, Yeah, so I might have to get that out and start... Yeah, you know, practicing my da-isms on it. <laughs> Start etching dicks and it's, oh, it's fucking hilarious. You put two thousand men in a room. What do you get? Yeah. Lots of dick engraving. Time yeah. well spent. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. Um, so today on the podcast, we're going to be uh, delving into the life and livelihood of our very own Mister Mertansu. We decided we'd continue the interviewing of the, the podcasters. Mert drew the short straw. So today, Mert, we're going to be asking you a whole host of questions. And uh, right we're going to learn a little bit about Mert. Oh. <laughs> oh. You know the questions that we sent you? We're not asking any of them. Yeah, I didn't even, I didn't even think that you were going to ask them. I was like, these will be, they will be too simple. I know these son of a guns, they're not going to ask this. They're going to come with the weirdest shit. Well, we'll get it. We'll start off with some nice questions, you know. Yeah, yeah, let's start nicely. Let's play nice first. <laughs> so, Mert. Yes, Corin. 
We've noticed that you talk funny. You've got a bit of a, an accent. Do you want to, uh, maybe you should start by telling us where you're from. No, mate, I'm Australian. <laughs> oh, fucking grouse. Grouse, brother. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I am originally from Turkey. I left Turkey in 2005. I lived in the USA for another five years. And in 2010, uh, we came, me and my wife, we came to Australia to open up a resort. Open up as in, it's not our resort. The resort that we used to work at decided to open a branch in Australia. So we volunteered and we said, oh, we'll go help the place open up. And me and my wife, we came to Australia in 2010 as a package deal. And our idea was to get the place up and running. And so we'll be staying here for two years or so, and then we'll go back to U.S. That was the idea. So the place was the uh, Chateau on at the Vintage in Hunter Valley. And yeah, we thought it'll be two years. It became four or five and <clears throat> two kids and a mortgage later. We both became Australian citizens and yeah, 10 years. It's been 10 years since we got here. So that's a pretty broad brush approach to your history. How about you give us a bit of detail about how knives were involved in your childhood in back in Turkey? Where did you live and, and what was it like there? I grew up, uh, most of my childhood was on a Mediterranean coast, and we did a lot of outdoor stuff, like we used to go to picnic and camp, not kind of camping, but we used to go out in, in the woods every weekend, and I will find knives, or I will take some of the kitchen knives and get into trouble, because I'll be ruining the, the kitchen knives we had, and then I think with one of, one of my uh, first pocket money, I bought a knife, small, like a folding knife, it was a piece of shit. It didn't fall, it didn't close, it didn't cut, it was shit, but it was my knife. It was my first thing. I was so happy, so fucking proud. And then fast forward a few years later, I cut my finger with one of, while I was cutting, while I was peeling oranges, and I cut myself pretty deep. Didn't require stitches, but I can tell the, the walls were covered in blood, and that scared the shit out of my parents. It was like, no, you can't touch knives, you can't play with them. Yeah. See how that went. I became a knife maker. <laughs> Were you in a town or a, a city or what was it like? I yeah, I was, I, was, I was in a city. I, was in a, I lived in a city called Antalya. And we lived there till I was 14. Then we moved to Ankara, the capital. And my, my relationship with knives, like I always used knives because my mom was working and I always had to cook or heat up meals for myself. So I... I had to know how to cut things. So I was, I had a better knife skill than most of the kids my age. And I always liked knives. I always got into swords and sabers. Interestingly, you know, like a lot of the kids, when they finished it, when they, as a present from their moms and dads, they'll ask for bikes. <clears throat> I made my parents buy me a replica sword when I was a kid. They're like, how about we buy you a bike like a normal kid? I'm like, no, 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 I want a sword. We went to the touristic shops. They got me one of the souvenir, like dodgy sword-looking objects. Now I'm remembering. Which one was it? Fucking He-Man or Conan? No, no, it was a, it was a Turkish, <laughs> it was a Turkish style. Like it was the, it was a replica of a, a college. So they end up buying me a replica touristy souvenir kind of thing, and they were so scared, thinking that I'm going to slash my older brother. Never happened. Yeah. So instead of bike, my, my wish was I want a sword. Yeah, fair enough. I I, I, I can I can relate to that. Yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, how did you get into knife making? Knife making. Okay. So, before I talk about talk about knife making, I have to say, I have no skills in terms of like 
I had I haven't used any power tools until I decide I, I was going to make knives. There are a lot of knife makers who are out there. They're boiler makers. They're cabinet makers. They have they're working with the tools. I had none of them. Okay, so while so I became a chef in 2003 or 2002. I can't remember now. And I always use knives. And at one point, I realized like the knives I was using, they were not good enough. So I was sharpening them with the stone. I was giving them like really nice steep edges on a steep angle, but the knives were the edges were not lasting. So I was using the German knives as my German chef told me to buy. And it came to a point I'm like, no, this this knife is dumb. This knife is thick, doesn't cut, and when I sharpen it, the edge doesn't last. This is stupid. So I ended up buying a Japanese knife. That was the new thing back then. It was okay, but some of the things I didn't like. Then I contacted the guy sourcing the Japanese knives. I said, can I get a custom made, custom made this knife in a little bit taller here, a little bit longer than this, and like, no, you, you don't, they don't make custom. Okay. I contacted the couple American guys who are making custom kitchen knives. They're back in the back, they're big back in the day. And so I ended up commissioning my first custom knife. The, after waiting like quite a bit, six months or eight months later, I received my knife. So the knife was beautiful, had a beautiful Damascus, had a beautiful handle, but it didn't cut shit. So I went back to the maker and said, look, man, the tip, there's no distal taper. Tip is too thick. It's too thick behind the edge and all that I was explaining. So I'm going back and forth with the emails. The guys tell him, no, no, it cuts well. I'm thinking like, okay. He, whoever made it, he made a beautiful knife, but it wasn't right for the tool. So I end up myself explaining how the tool should be working to the guy who hasn't used the tool to the capacity. So I realized, okay, I know what the outcome should be. I know what the final tool should look like, should work like, but I don't know how to make it. So I started looking for the knife making courses. And funnily enough, that's how I met Uncle Keith. So I saw that Keith Flatter was doing a lot of knife making courses and I hit him up and sometime in December or maybe early January, I took my first knife making lesson from Keith Flatter. And on my way driving back from Keith's place to Hunter Valley, I was like, oh, this is going to be something. I knew, like I knew I had the inner guilt. I was guilty because I felt like I was cheating on my profession. I was cheating on my craft of chefing. Because I knew this was going to go deeper than just doing for fun. So I ended up buying a lot of the tools. I ended up buying the stupid grinders. Keith not to tell, told me not to buy. I ended up buying a grinder from uh, the, you know, the combination sander from the Bunnings, the Ozito <laughs> shit. He said, don't, don't buy these, yeah. these are shit. And I'm, I'm looking and like, oh, the grinder he told me to buy is two grand. I don't know, two grand. I'm running in Bunnings. Oh, I need to buy something to fix the garden. Oh, they're selling these stupid grinders. Let me buy. After one or two time use, the whole I'm lucky the grinder shit itself. I get the I got my money back. But yeah, I start collecting tools and I start buying knife making steel and I was trying to make knives on my days off in this small one meter to one and a half like two meters garden shed. I will my workbenches were my like my my rubbish bins, they were my workbenches. I had no workbench, I had nothing. Then I took another course from Keith. It was about forging knives. We forged some kitchen knives, and then I realized, okay, this is going to go deeper than just being a hobby. So I ended up going to uh, U.S. and visit Bill Burke, 
and we made some Damascus, we made some Samai. When I came back to Australia and I started getting a little custom orders here and there, and the rest is history. Custom orders followed up, and yeah, start making knives. You make knives. I make knives. I'm an integral knives. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when did you make the you idiots? So when did you make the transition? Fuck you, Corey. <laughs> Fuck you, Corey. <laughs> when did you make the transition to to full time? Like, what what point in your life do you say, "Hey, this profession of being a chef isn't everything I want it to be. It's time to to throw that away and go and stay in my garden shed every day." Look, I I did all right as a chef. I worked in good places, and I. The restaurant I used to work at, we got chefs at, so I wasn't I wasn't bad in the kitchen. I was happy. I was I was proud with my food and all that. But after uh, having my second child, and also I was getting I was getting more I was getting better results in knife making than kitchen. I will say because I was winning awards and I was getting good a reputation in terms of kitchen knives and all that. And chef cooking in the kitchen being a hard job and working a lot of hours and you don't see the there's so many variables that you rely on and it's not as it's not as easy as people think but then i realized look this is the job that i've been doing it for almost 15 years and it's hard mm -hmm. and i'm not getting a much recognition and this is another thing is i'm making nice as a hobby and i'm getting a lot of recognition also i can work from home and i can see my kids if i start if i decide to do that so i think the the straw that broke the back of the camel was when my wife, uh, when she ruptured her uh, patella tendon, I had to, she had to be on the crutches and she was home for like a month. And I told boss, like, look, I, I can't come because we are no family here. So I was, I had to look after her while she was in crutches and I had to do all the kid drop off, pick up and all that. And I was home and I was, I was, we were booking babysitters just to look after kids while I was working, but that wasn't even paying for my salary. I'm thinking, if something goes wrong, if one of the kids is sick, I always have to be the one that bails out. So it just dawned on me, like, we have no family network here. So making nice made, made the most, most sense, not just because of recognition, but also having a good life balance between the kids and my, my sanity, I'll say my mental health. Fair enough. So that's a that's not a bad segue, Mert. Um, both you and I do this for a living. Yeah. Sort of sort of different, I guess a different approach for both of us to, to the way we get around it. But um, you just said then about your sanity. How do you go with? Uh, how do you go with the isolation? Because obviously you're working from home and you're by yourself. Yes. Look. You know the answer to that because all the all the text messages we sent each other <laughs> to cheer us up, all the shits and giggles, and oh, all yeah. the yeah, we know it. But just to yeah. give the perspective, I came from a place where I was always in contact with the people. I had my own kitchen team, and you always in contact with people. You talk, you talk. Now, in my day, the most talking I do in the morning is telling my kids, kids to just. Eat your breakfast. Just eat your breakfast. Get in the car. Get in the car. Where's your fucking hat? Where's your fucking hat? And then tell the dog, like, come on, go go, take a shit. And I don't talk to anybody till my kids come home or my wife comes home. And, like, adult conversation I have a day is pretty much non-existent. 
And at first, like, oh, yeah, it's, it feels okay. But after a while, you're starting to get cabin fever. You're starting to talk to yourself. All of a sudden, you start, you find yourself dancing in the, sh- in the shed and looking at yourself, what the fuck I'm doing? I'm glad there's no, <laughs> I'm glad there's no cameras recording me. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a funny thing. Um, I reach I reach out to my friends like you, Kevin, Corin, and if if I see something funny or always as although I don't talk to face to face, but I always do like a video call to friends and I chat with friends and send messages. That's the best way to keep yourself kind, entertaining your mental health, and also that's how you get distracted. (laughs) Don't get shit done in the shit. My wife was saying about last time I got the uh, when I I took half the thumb off and my wife had one of her colleagues was like oh maybe maybe you should have a camera in the workshop so that no. if something goes wrong you know you you can dial in and see Kev every now and then I'm, I'm like you're like no fucking way no 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 because no. I'm in there doing the same shit as you every now and then you just fucking do something do something stupid especially if I'm listening to music. I'll start yeah. just bloody headbanging and stuff, pretend air yeah. guitar and shit like that. Humping the animal. <laughs> hey, is those cameras already in there? <laughs> yeah, I was like, nah. Yeah, so yeah, that's a good thing though because there's a lot of people out there at the moment, um, you know, they question about becoming a full-time knife maker and there's, there's some really fucking awesome components to being a full-time knife maker and there's some really fucking ordinary components of being a full-time knife yep. maker and you've got a it's a it's a real balance between the two and and i've been doing it now for nearly four years i think i've sort of you know left my job and been doing it and there's yes been some fucking immense highs and some fucking crazy lows and they've exactly. managed to i think they've managed to sort of just even out which makes mm-hmm. it good but you know, there's times I fucking sit there in that workshop, man, and I'm fucking working on a knife, and I'm thinking, I don't know, how would I go being in an office again? <laughs> Look, I don't think I can ever go back to working. I never worked in office. The most office sort of job I done was HR, but that was still in the hospitality. But yeah. with the knife making, I find the highs are very high, lows are very low. Where in the other kind of like full-time jobs that you get a salary or you get a paycheck, it's more like a it's more like a linear line. Yeah. It might be a little low, it might be a little high. You might be like, oh, work didn't suck, I'm happy. Versus like you make something and you're so happy, so proud and sells and or you get recognition or other things and the highs are very high or lows, like last week I had four knives that they gone missing and I had to replace them. That's that's like shit. I have, I'm missing four or five knives, or yeah, sometimes, yeah. That's crazy. Something that's happens. That something happens out of your control, and something the price of something goes up, or let's say the one country starts doing a tariff or taxes all of a sudden, and you stop selling to that country. You're like, oh shit, that's totally out of your control, and then you're losing a market, and that's shit all of a sudden. Yeah. So um. Who who um who do you sort of draw inspiration from when you're looking at your knives? You're you're predominantly a, sh- a kitchen knife maker. I don't think I've ever seen you produce anything other than kitchen knives. Um, who out there in the world do you sort of look at 
and you know not you're not copying them but who do, who do you draw that inspiration from to do what you do look first getting in the kitchen knows bob kramer also not just for his knives but also for his history and how he got knives inspired me quite a bit too and obviously having learned stuff and having worked on the bill every now and then i see similar things similar styles not that it's it's not that I do on a, on a purpose, but if you like somebody's style, then you might, your initial work might look like it. So I, every now and then I see, I see those, in, um, the influences of both of those guys. Yeah, nice. So when you, you that, that's the people that you, that you draw resources from, but what sort of books or social media or, or forums. What what other resources do you draw from when you when you're researching and making knives? Uh, books, I will say. But what I do is, I don't look on the Instagram or Facebook for inspiration whatsoever. I like to look at the older stuff. As in, I look, I look, I like the look of the older swords, older daggers, older things. Because most likely, if Anybody comes out today with saying that I invented something, unless they invented a whole new style, whole new material, most likely it's been done before. And when you look at a historical sword that's been made, made in 14th or 15th century and stood the time battles and all that and elements and corrosion, all that, and you see, still see the craftsmanship and the ideas behind it, that gives me more inspiration than seeing a cool picture on Instagram with the bunch of filters to make it cool. So you, yes. So you don't get any inspiration at all from Instagram, Mert? I get the inspiration that you show me on your phone card. That's, <laughs> that's, that's nasty. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that, that's worse distraction than you and I texting each other, Mert. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Corin is showing me a, show me a video on Instagram. I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> Some things are best left unsaid. Maybe I'll put that on the cutting room floor. Mert put me onto some very inspirational Instagrammers. So uh, yeah, I'm just you know, a little bit of a silent thanks to you, Mert. There you go. Uh, fuck you, guys. <laughs> so Mert, where um, you put up a post on Instagram the other day with one of your knives, um, and you you put a question up there to the people that look at your thing, which is. Can you guess which is your favourite timber? Now, yeah, there I, were a I lot of... Res- I, I regret it. I regret it from the fucking get-go. After five minutes, I regret it. There's a lot of questions in there like, is it oak? Is it coloured timbers? Is it balsa uh, wood? Some, some, some absolute clown put balsa wood on there. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that? You know, yeah, I don't know. Wanko, I wouldn't deal with that guy. Um, what, what is your favourite timber to work with it's hard to beat good australian hardwood timbers like ringiji i will say ringiji is one of my uh, favorites other than that any kind of rosewood species they're great to work with but due to the sites and all the restrictions they're getting harder to come by in australia and it's not it's not possible to import them legally so i will say ringiji is my favorite and if I can get my hands on a Honduras rosewood bird or African blackwood, yeah, I always like them. But Ringiji or Tasmanian blackwood, I, I like them quite a bit. 
Yeah, nice. Um, what's the what do you what would you say is like the best knife? Which one for you? You know, it doesn't have to be forever, but let's say somewhere in the recent past, what's the best knife that you've made? Um, and can people see it anywhere? Ooh, best knife I made. I will say one of the two best knives I made is in the same guy's uh, collection. It's the Woods knife, and it's my first Woods knife that I think that it was very cleanly done. Yeah, I made more difficult to make knives before, like I made Integral, Integral Samurai Damascus or Stainless Samurai, but I just found that knife, the, the first Woods knife that I did was quite nice looking in terms of the fit and finish, and it just looked good with the new handle design I was trying, and I will say the second best knife, or maybe the the best knife I done was the one I recently completed, is again Woods knife with the Walrus Ivory uh, handle, with the frame handle construction so that's going to the same gentleman's collection so i will say those those are my two best knives i will say and pretty much people can just go and scour your um instagram to see those yes they're on my instagram posts and i post like five six pictures of the both of the knives and yeah i was quite happy with them nice nice beautiful so uh what you know, we talked about workshop company and how you're in your shed most of the time alone. But you recently got a dog. How's he for company in the workshop? Uh, he's shit for company. I love him, but he he doesn't. He either way. So I got a dog uh, three months ago, and his name is Kaya. He's a purebred Kangal, and he doesn't like shed. He comes to shed, give me that look, like saying, "Can we really go inside?" He doesn't like being in the shed. <laughs> or if he if he comes to the shed. He sits right under the fucking grinders. And he's not a small <laughs> dog. Like I have to step over him, go on the other side, and poor fella gets covered in the steel dust. And I feel bad, and I just kick him out of the shed because he's, he's getting like he's breathing all of that steel dust and shit. So either way, he, if he ever comes in the shed, he sits by the – I make him sit by the fan, or he just goes in the sandbox of the kids and destroys the fucking sandbox. And <clears throat> Last week he came with the holding one of the timbers, like he ripped the fucking timber off the sandbox. <laughs> came in like, doop de doop de doop. Look what's in my mouth. I ripped the fucking sandbox. I'm like, ah, oh, fucking. Now I need to fix that. <laughs> I used to have a German Shepherd type dog. I don't know what it was, but stray. But it'll always lie between the anvil and the forge. You had to step over it with the red hot metal. My dog is not much company, but what I do is I listen a lot of the podcasts when I when I work. I listen to a lot of the uh, sports podcast and I also listen a lot of the Joe Rogan and yeah podcasts keep me keep me entertained I listen a lot of the history podcasts as well history podcasts yeah, yeah right yeah I like I like knowing irrelevant information that happened like 500 years ago yeah you'll be the quiz you'll be the quiz night king I want you on my table at the quiz show uh, quiz night sure yeah I love that stuff as well useless information yes only comes out on a quiz night and then you sit there and go They'll ask the question and everyone will be looking dumbfounded and you lean across and go, it's this. And everyone's like, no fucking way. How do you know that? And you go, there's no heaps of shit that you don't need to know. <laughs> yeah, look, I like I like the history of the 1800s and 1900s. It also tells you how the, how the world that we know of nowadays is formed and how the alliances were formed and the histories behind the countries and and how it was found and what how the wars changed the countries. Right, and that's 
yeah, that that stuff I like it quite a bit. Yeah, no. Yeah, nice. Very good. Are you still guys asking me nice questions? I'm still surprised. You haven't brought up the. What are, yeah, what are your pet what are your pet peeves in knife making, mate? What do you see out there in knife making that just oh. fucking you know grinds your fucking teeth? Look, I'm a salty guy, Kev. You know it. Okay. This <laughs> might this this might be a long segment. <laughs> this might be a fucking long segment. Uh, welcome to Knife Making Down Under Part Two with Mert. <laughs> <laughs> Six-part six series of Mert's peeves. <laughs> okay, I have a lot of pet peeves, but the reason I have a lot of pet peeves is coming from a chefing background, something is either right technically or something is wrong. Like when you make a Bernays sauce, when that shit splits, you can see like the oil floating, like melted butter floating, versus like the bottom looking like a fucking scrambled eggs. You fucked it up, okay? It's not a gray area. You fucked it up. I have a similar vision in knife making. When I see a simple things in a knife making, like when I see a chef knife that has a, you can't tell, so thick behind the edge because your sharpening area looks like four or five mil. And however the person puts it, saying whatever they want to call it, whatever they want to say is the nicest looking, nicest cutting knife, I know it's not. It's super thick behind the edge. If I can see from here after all the filters and edits from your picture, mm-hmm. I see it. It's like it's it's very hard not to see it. I think it, it come it boils down to most like being honest. If you make a mistake, just say it. If if you if you think like I made a knife, this is the first time I'm working on it, first time I'm working this kind of knife, yeah, that's fine, say it. I think yeah. that's that's probably one of my pet peeves. What about another pet peeve? Yeah, keep them coming. Come on. Fuck. Come on. Fuck. Come on, but <laughs> This is one I, of the actual questions. Jamie put on the yes. spot. You said yeah. you had a whole list, and here you are. You're falling down after one. Fucking I'm hell. thinking like I got twenty. Which ones? I, I'll give you're you. You're overthinking it. Yeah, I dislike light, colorful handles. I I I hate him with passion. <laughs> I hate him with passion. Okay, you happy now? Take that son of a bitch. Uh, well, we've got another thing in common. Dyed, uh, dyed, fucking punky looking, fucking. Pretty handles. Hmm. Anyway, it's, personal it's opinion, funny. everyone that's going to fucking start sending me messages and murder messages, personal uh, opinion, we're allowed to. If you get upset, suck it up. I was going to make a, a pink Juma barrel knife, but yeah, probably not. Yeah, but pink Juma I... is different to fucking multicolored fucking dyed burl, rainbow Look, burl. I, I, I bought two pink blocks for my daughter, okay? I have no problem with making her a pink handle and shit. I, I made colorful, I made dyed handles, but if you realize, if you look it up close, I made a lot of dyed handles recently. Well, not recently, like a year ago, because I want to use them all. And I got no dyed piece left in my wood stash. I'm really happy. I'm I'm down to like basic ugly timbers. I'm like basic Coca-Cola, basic Honduras Rosewood Burl, or Honduras uh, Rosewood, uh, yeah, and those like, eh. I burn. burn. I'd yeah. burn that stuff in my pizza oven. Yeah, burns nice, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, Corey. I, I watched a documentary the other week about how they get that rosewood out of the jungle, so it was pretty special. You know, they really have flogged it over there in uh, Madagascar. Yeah. yeah they, they, they fucked it up. Like a friend of mine who's, who's importing and exporting a lot of timber was saying they were, they were sending like those giant ships to Africa to get them filled up with timber. 
not asking how it's being sourced, is it legal or is it ethical? And in return, they send them AK-47s. Yeah, but, right. <laughs> yeah, right. But these guys that were pulling the logs out of the jungle, like they could make three months' wages just by from one good log. Yeah, and, you know, you can't really blame them when people have got nothing and there's a fucking there's a log they can drag out and get three months' worth of money for. Yeah, it's a it's a virtue signal and thing. Like you're like, oh, you shouldn't be killing that. You shouldn't be doing this. We're talking about it, but those guys have nothing. So it's it's easy for us to say, don't fucking cut that tree. Yeah, it's easy for us to save. It'd be good if like a group of people all got together investment-wise and started planting the trees for a future investment. They reach maturity. It's not that long. Like if they, oh, Well, according to this, it was a 50, year, 50 years to reach maturity. But if you planted them out and you've got a consortium that can fund it for 50 years while they get pruned and weeded and whatever else needs to happen to make sure they grow into nice straight trees, 50 years from now, we'll have a supply of timber again rather than at the moment where we just got nothing. One of the reasons I like Green Gigi over a lot of the imported exotic timbers is it's sustainable. It's sustainable. There's a lot of, there's a fair bit of out there. And most of a lot of it's been like not even touched or used for firewood. So yeah. It's a yeah. lot, lot, lot more sustainable than other timbers out there. I'm pretty sure it was Carlos de Silva. G'day, mate. How are you? Um, was telling me about a property that his friend has got. And they had so many Ringiji trees, like the, they were talking, this is way back when um, the Chinese workers would literally walk around all these properties or travel between these properties in New South Wales and clear the fields for people. So they'd literally go there and say, okay, well, you know, it's two bucks a day if we get all these trees down. And Carlos, pretty sure it was Carlos was telling me this property that he went to, there were like kilometres of Ringiji trees just laying down in this field that have been cleared but never, or cut but never cleared. And you look at that, and they've been lying there now for probably close to 80 years or more, and you just think, fuck, that's that's just fucking unreal. Yeah. Yeah, no, no question about it. It's a good good timber for, for working. It's bloody hard, looks beautiful, and, yeah, as you say, that, I don't, you know, we'll call it sustainable, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's only about yeah. a billion acres of it out there. Yeah, and a big shout-out again to Peter Cheel. He's got some yeah. of the nicest uh, ringiji going around that I've seen anyway. Um, Peter is a good bloke up near Emerald in Queensland, and um, he goes out and uh, sources some of, like I said, some of the nicest stuff. And I've got to admit, he does some really fair prices. When I see his stuff on Instagram, I've fucking got to stop myself from buying it. We had to tell him to raise his prices, remember, guys? His his prices he was selling way too cheap. He was like selling five ten bucks. That was at bloody Sydney Knife Show, and yeah. at, in two thousand and fourteen he worked. He walked in with some of the best ringiji anyone had ever seen. He said, "Oh, ten bucks a block," and I was like, <laughs> "Mad rush to fucking get to his table." <laughs> and he, you know, after the first day he'd sold out, and you know he was in a, he was in a bad spot. He was in a tucked away in a back corner um, at the show. Yes, and, I remember. And everyone was complaining, but except him, because for whatever reason, he still sold out. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the timber joint is his website for all of you guys out there that uh, don't know it. And he's got some interesting information there. He tells you about the trees. Uh, he's got stuff for sale. He puts up pictures of them with uh, from all different angles. He doesn't varnish them or anything. He just wets them down, and away he goes. Yeah. And Very you good. know the funny thing is, there are a couple guys from overseas buy his timber. Triple like, 
triple what they paid for it, and they still they still make killing. They still sell it in the U.S. easily. Oh hell yeah! I might have to uh, take a few blocks over for people that want to go to Blade Show this year. Yeah, I did. I took a few blocks last year. I uh, yeah, I took a handful of blocks over and gave them away when we were there. We gave some to a uh, young knife maker. Oh, I find his name. He was doing pretty good stuff, and he was just a kid. He was really respectful. One of those guys that comes up to you at, at a show, and they're like, yeah, under 20, super respectful, lots of really good questions, and just really super interested. So, yeah, me and Cole gave him some timber and thought, you know, good on you, mate. And he actually sent us a photo of what he'd made with it. So, Oh, that's all right. Then, oh, that's nice. I'll find his name and give him a shout-out. So, uh, Matt, what's your <laughs> current... Okay, for... <laughs> for for record, Corin just brought another inspirational material. That shit is no fucking TED talk. That's more like a twerk, 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 <laughs> twerking, twerk talk, twerk talk. <laughs> what's the most oh, exotic? Dear. Speaking of exotic dance, I mean materials. What's the most exotic <laughs> material that you've used? I will say mask uh, oxon, I, I mean, made a I made a handle. This was like one of the, my earlier custom builds and a gentleman was asking for like a make me a crazy handle and I said, okay, how about I put musk hooks on in the front, then I put a mammoth, a woolly mammoth spacer, then they had like a, um, I think I put walrus ivory in there as well. Like the handle had pretty much fucking everything. Handle had like a musk hooks, it had the Malibur, had the... Um, Mammoth two spaces along with the walrus ivory. So like I will say the musk ox horn is a pretty special material. Cost like a shit ton per slab. Yeah. Um Bert, and if Bert, you Bert gave me a fucking block of uh musk ox horn to stabilize for him. Yeah. And I and I thankfully he didn't tell me the fucking price of this stuff because yeah. I took it home and I chucked it in the stabilizing kit and it, it came good, you know, it was all solid. Um and then I think I sent it back to you. And then I think it was when I went to Blade Show, and I saw some really thin scale thickness um, pieces for like four hundred and fifty US dollars. It's just like, holy shit! <laughs> that bit Merc gave me must have been worth about fifteen hundred fucking dollars. <laughs> no, I was like, I think it was like five six hundred, but it's expensive as shit. Yeah. It's lovely stuff, though. That chunk, you're still not missing that chunk that I cut off it, though, are you? Yeah. <laughs> chunk? Really? You fucking chunk? Yeah, you're a fucking chunk. <laughs> you're a twerk chunk. <laughs> I'm, um, I, I'm really looking forward for like a description of this episode. Yeah, twerk chunk. And Mert and twerk chunk. Mert, Mert and twerk. <laughs> Get to twerk. I mean, work, Mert. What's your um, uh, preferred grind? You have to be pretty My, straightforward here, obviously, because you're a chef knife maker. Oh, uh, look, I, I try a lot of the grinds. I try like the asymmetrical grinds. I try the sort of what people call S grinds, but now I settled on a good convex grind. I think the reason I'm doing convex grind is it's very hard to beat good convex grind if it's done right. Yeah. Okay. And S grind is not going to make up for the if it's thick behind the edge or if it's not done right. S grind is not going to save it just because S grind doesn't mean it cuts well. Plus, it's hard to beat a good, well done convex grind, and they're easier to finish too. True, very true. Yeah. 
Um, two, 48 or 72 inch belts. I have two grinders in my shop. They're both 72 inch belts. And I wouldn't mind getting a third one, but you know, I'm really, I'm really, my shop is really tight. I don't have any space. So if I can squeeze one, I'll be a miracle. You might want to get a new drill press. Why would I want to get a drill press? You keep telling me that <laughs> wall down or thing. Like people keep tagging me. Oh. There's a wall down near your place. Man. I got two drill presses. I just bought one. Do you know the, the tool and cutter? <laughs> sorry to interrupt, but I, you know the tool and cutter grinder I drove to Melbourne to buy. Yeah, yeah. I put that. Corin. I put it in the shop, and I've Corin. just. Corin, we had this conversation. Corin, we just had this conversation. We, I put it in the shop, and I've looked at it, and I've gone. Nah, I just it's too big. It doesn't fit where I want it to go, and it's just too big. So I I, I sold it and bought a wall down, <laughs> another one. I I actually thought that someone had hacked your fucking page because you were selling something. Yeah, well, mate, it's. it's I was like, what the fuck is selling? It's just too thing? big. But anyway, I got it. I got it sold straight away, and the guy was super happy. He's driving down from Orange. It's going to be the world's most travelled. If you get a good quality wall down drill like the earlier models those things are just freaking unreal they seriously are a well-built machine and simple i've got one of them what i what this is is the super high precision super high speed oh, uh, version the real super small one speed. so this is the real small one super high speed yeah okay yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's a big drill press but it's for drilling very small precision holes and and they run up to twelve thousand rpm i'm i'm talking to i'm talking to total fucking tool nerds like it's so nice this drill so good get the fuck out of here i caress my wall down mert i talk to it it keeps me company ah keeps me warm at night mert <laughs> only thing about it is it's three phase but that's okay i can live with that it's a yeah fucking great machine so that, that's days. the limitation that I have, which I wish I Are we getting sponsored by Walldown? Are we getting sponsored now? No. They, they, they don't exist anymore, do they? Oh, yeah, the Brobo. Brobo Walldown. Yeah, but they don't do drills anymore. Yeah. Moving along from awesome drills that Mert's not yeah. interested in because he's fucking living in the past, what's your preferred steel and why? Uh, preferred steel. I think my go-to steel is 5200. Why? Yep, why? 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 Because it's not the easiest steel to forge, and it's to heat treat properly. I will say you better off using a cryo as well. But I think when done right, fifty one hundred is a great steel. Some people say that it's super hard to heat treat, mate. Uh, no, it's not. I set my paragon oven. Yeah, I I press the button, gets to the heat that <laughs> the heat I want, and I chuck the blade in. Then when it beeps, I take the blade out and I, I dunk in the oil. So I think that's quite simple. Fair enough then. <laughs> so your preferred heat treatment, your preferred heat treatment's not a gas forge then. Uh, I've done any gas forge. I've done any gas forge, but I will say I'm getting better results with the kiln. At least it's more repeatable. Like I had a, I had a batch that I had a problem that one harder than lot more than I wanted to. One, I mean, you can say that might be an issue with the issue with the tempering, but one didn't harden, and I had weird spots here and there. I use kiln for it. I mean, there's 10, 1075, 1080, you can do it in the forge easily because there's no excess carbon you can put in the solution, but the 52100, you don't want that 1% to go all in the solution. You don't want that, so I, I do it in the kiln. Press the yeah. button, 
makes the beep, then I put the steel, <clears> then it makes another beep, I take it out. Fair enough. Have you read, this is a bit controversial, but have you read up on like uh, the heat treating methods of guys like Ed Fowler on 52-100? Uh, look, when I got, when I went to the Bill Burke, we tried this method of like, the, you know, the triple quench and triple temper, do it overnight and things like that. Yeah, I tried them as well. I don't do it anymore. Fair enough. I'd imagine you've done your own testing and that and come up with that process based on your own testing. Yes, I, I used it. I love 52100. I reckon it's a fantastic steel. It's one of my favorite steels. So these days I don't use it. I use Dharma steel, but it, you know, the first bulk buy of steel that I did was just so I could buy myself a sheet of 52100. So that that's the truth. <laughs> I just bought some of your shear cut stuff because we forged it. So I bought a few yeah, bars of it. I buy that too. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good choice. Good choice. I don't think it was even that bent either, so. I haven't opened the package yet. <laughs> I've got about six fucking packages of steel up in my workshop. You were saying if carp- it comes bent, you're going to return it, Kev. Is that true? Yeah, it's still in the car. It's still wrapped <laughs> in the car. It's a refund. Yeah. <laughs> it's an my investment steel process. Rusted. I want my money back. Yeah. <laughs> Some I drew on it with a Sharpie. <laughs> Yeah, it's rusty. That's the one that I like best, or it's bent. That's the two ones we get for warranty claim on steel. Oh, it's rusty. Oh, it's bent. It's like, yeah, well, it's water jet cut. It rusts before it even gets to my shop, so deal with it. I mean, the advantages of water jet cutting far outweigh the rust, so oh, fuck yeah. that's why we do it. Yeah. What's your favorite tool, Mert? What's my favorite? You call us tool nerds. Well, you've got to have something in your shop that you like. Favorite file. What gets you hard, Mert? What gets me hard? The the video that you were showing there, yeah, that... <laughs> <laughs> oh. I can't edit that out of my mind now. <laughs> I can't. It's stuck in here now. We've talked about it too much. It's too hard to edit it out. We'll we'll have to give a link to the um, to Mert's uh, inspirational Instagram accounts. Ah, oh, fuck you, Glenn. I say I like my this kind of precious. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Disc grinder. Yeah. What do you got? I got a disc grinder. Yeah, I know. But have you got a rest? Is it a Carbotech one or a variable speed or is it is steel or alley or Fuck, Mert. No one can see it. We need to know. Okay, look at the purchase history. <laughs> Customer. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one I got from Gramico. It's the one and a half horsepower, I believe, with the tool rest. And I do a lot of my, before going to hand sanding, they go in my disc grinder. And if I need to square up wood blocks or any material, they all go into like the, they go all to the disc grinder. I was saying, if if something happens my my variable speed belt grinder i can make with this grinder. It, it won't be easy it'll be hard but it's not the other way if the disc grinder goes i'll be in shit i'll be like oh how am i gonna square things like i'll be i'll be tied on i think yeah this grinder is my favorite tool in the shop i'm starting to use mine more and more after kev came up and uh <laughs> yeah gave him a 10 second rundown on how to use his disc grinder and he's like <laughs> I've never even used it. <laughs> I'd never done it with it. I got a, it was a sample motor and VFD from a company that wanted to sell us motor, motor and VFDs, and I stuck a disc on it and stuck it in the shed. And I'd sort of that was as far as I ever got until Kev came up. And those those poor guys wonder why they never got their business. You didn't even mm. fucking use it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of reasons actually, because we, but let's not go there. So, Bert, you're a bit of a show whore. That's the nicest way I can put it to you. What, you. <laughs> what show? What knife shows um, 
do you go to? And putting it out there loosely, like what? Which is your favourite one? Which is my favourite one? So you go to which one? Oh, you go to first. Which ones I go to? Well, I say Sydney show is a must for me. Sydney show is good. And second, I will say Blade. It's more of a networking event, especially with the kitchen knives. It's not that great of a scene, but I will say Sydney is the must for me. Like if I if I need a if I need a sacrifice, I can say okay, I'm not going to Blade, although I'll be really upset. But Sydney is a must for me. I have a lot of people that they know me from the first Sydney I exhibited. I mean, not it's not that old. Like it's only a few years, but. A lot of people, they still come to my table. I talk to them. They buy or something or they don't, but they sometimes mention the knives they've seen the previous years or they make comparisons saying, hey, Lassie, you brought a lot of these. I see more of this year. And you're starting to get a feeling. You're starting to know people. You're starting to know faces. You're starting to know like people coming, doors open, and somebody rushes to your table. And it's great. It's great to see people coming to your back table over and over. That's great. I won't change that. Repeat business, building the the customer base exactly. and developing the relationships. It's fantastic. Yeah. Exactly. And for the last the last few Australian shows, Mert, I've got to admit you've had the fucking best company next to you. Yeah, it has to be changed. Like stop putting that <laughs> next to you. Man, I pay I, I pay Andrew more fucking money than you do. <laughs> yeah, we're like okay. Jay and Silent Bob. Me and Kev always right next to each other. Yeah. <laughs> Like sometimes people like come to the table, they have like the draw attention because we bullshit so much. They're like, <clears throat> I'm looking at this knife. Like, oh, shit. Sorry, mate. If you were thinking about it like American makers, because it turns out like looking at the statistics for this show, 50% of our audience comes from America. So like, I don't know what they want to listen to us for. It's like um, all cussing and swearing and stupidity and... We're not, yeah, anyway, they like us. So, hello, all the American people out there. But, Mert, Discord. what do you reckon? What show do you reckon they should come to if they come to Australia? Oh, Sydney No Show. Sydney No Show is the biggest. Fucking yeah, It's the biggest. You've got to come. Yeah. And if you've been thinking about it for a while, dead set, stop thinking and start doing because coming out to, to Sydney Knife Show, it's not about making a profit. If you're lucky, you might cover some costs. Uh, but if you give us plenty of notice, Fuck, we'll give you a good time. That's it. We'll look after you. Any, any, uh, oh, yeah. any of the yeah. American listeners that have been to Blade Show and know about Australian hospitality around the bar, especially, <laughs> come out. Uh, don't, don't look for Fosters. We don't fucking drink, drink Fosters, okay? Yeah. We'll teach you what it's all about. Take you into the outback. Yeah. If you want to ask, uh, ask anyone, speak to Jim Cooper and uh, uh, Kevin Cashin and um, Bill Burke and. Sofredo, Rodrigo Sofredo. Bill is potentially coming out to Sydney this year. I've got to just check with him and see if that's going to happen. Awesome. I, I'm picking Kyle Royer up from the airport in a couple of days. So, yeah. Fuck. Nice. Yeah. He'll, the only problem is, you know, I normally do a bit of a tour up in the mountains and everything. Everything's shut because of the fires. So all the national parks are shut. So they're going to get a bit of a, uh, a soft cock tour instead of the um, the hardcore stuff. You have to take them down to bloody Fitzroy Falls, that sort of area. Is That that didn't get burned out, did it? I don't know. I'll have to check it out. I haven't thought about Fitzroy Falls. I was just thinking I might just take them up and, and tell them to walk down the stairs at the Three Sisters with the promise of a free ride up the up the cable car and then just not give them the free ride up the cable car. <laughs> have to walk back up the stairs. Well, you know, Corn, you were you were saying like one thing that you were saying that 
say they might not cover the cost, but yeah, if they want to only bring, if American makers, they want to come to Sydney knife show, and if they're only bringing kitchen knives, the competition in kitchen knives is very hard in Australia, and Australia has a lot of successful kitchen knives makers, but if a folder maker comes in, things are a lot different. Yes, we have good folder makers, but there's not that many good high-end folders in Australia. Yeah, custom custom folders. Yeah, folders or boobies. The other thing to do is to pre-sell your work. Pre-sell your work before you come out. So, you, you know, there's buyers for it here. You can bring it out, put it on your table, show everybody, talk about what you do, introduce yourself, have a great time, and, you know, get them all collected on the Sunday after the show. Yeah, yeah that's it. True. So, Mert, your, your future in knife making, where do you see, see yourself? What do you what do you want to do? You're going to continue on your custom path as you are now? Is it giving you the satisfaction that you need? And Well, Kev, what happened is last year, I will say more like 2018 or 19, I just realized I was becoming what I, did, I didn't like with the custom knife makers to begin with. Because when I first contacted the custom knife makers, they're like, oh, I'm booked out. I can't take custom orders. Or if you order one, it'll be it'll be two years or if you order a custom knife it'll be like thousand dollars and like oh shit back then when i was chefing i'm like i, I can't work with these things like i can't i need a knife i need to buy it now you have it no i'm just gonna go to the other guy or you send the email then email doesn't come back not that i'm doing any better with the emails to be honest i still suck at it but i came to a realization that I'm no longer going to be a custom knife maker. So I don't call myself custom knife maker anymore because what I've done is I I still have probably like four or five custom orders left. And once I finish that, I won't be taking custom orders. And I create a second brand with the Hunter Valley Blades. The Hunter Valley Blades, I will save 80% of my production or 80% of what I make is Hunter Valley Blades because I can make them. I When I make Hunter Valley Blades, I don't do hand finish on them. So I, I finish on the machine finish and I can make more of those knives versus my, my regular custom line. And I can keep the prices a lot more affordable and I can keep them almost as cheap as the factory made stuff. So I see myself making more of them and I pretty much see myself not doing any middle grade knife. Like I'll be, I'll be making Hunter Valley blades and the stuff that I put tensor knives on them, there'll be a lot more high-end stuff with the more Damascus with all integral and stuff like that. That's how I see it. So I won't be, I love 50 to 100, but I won't be making like just a small, small pair knife out of a 50 to 100 and put my label on. If I make a, something simple, it's going to be Hunter Valley blades because I can keep it the price. I can finish it a lot easier. You know, with you hand finish all of your knives, Kev. You know how long it takes, and with the kitchen knives, they're having a. Yeah. If you think about like ten inch kitchen knife, there's so much area to hand sand. Oh yeah. And if you if if there's any low spots, let's say you go back to grind the disc and that, but there's so much stuff to this sand, and I just make hunter valley blades, and I can pass on the savings to the people who buy it, and it's also easier to get the get the knives to the more people versus the just the selected few collectors. Yeah, sure. What piece of equipment? Do you want to get what's something that you most need that you don't have? Every maker wants more tools going. I, mean, I could use a press, I could use a forging press, I could use a mill. But to be honest, in my shop, I'm pretty much maxed out for the space. Anything that I want to add, I'll have a very hard time making my shop usable. So my, I won't be looking to buy any machine unless I 
increase the footprint of my shed. So what you need is a bigger shed. I need a shed like yours, Scott. I need, everybody needs a shed like yours. I'm jealous of your shed. You should be. <laughs> hashtag Bunnings Picton. Yeah, a mill. Hashtag Bunnings Picton. Look, mill won't hurt. Rolling, uh, yeah, forging press won't hurt either. Where the fuck I'm going to put them? I don't know. I need, a, I need more space. Fill in the pool and build a fucking new workshop. The kids will appreciate it. No, they won't. <laughs> they don't appreciate jack shit. Yeah, fair enough. So uh, have you got a tip for everybody out there this week, mate? What's the guest tip of the week? Well, tip of the week is if, you, if you're making knives and if you're new at it and if you want to just hear good feedback or if you just want to people saying, yeah, you're doing a good job, that's fine. But I say if you really want to improve your work, you're better, you're better off asking to a person that is an established knife maker. Okay? What they say might hurt your feelings, okay? What they say might hurt your feelings, but they'll be honest with you, and they'll push you to make better knives. So if I was going to ask Sean McIntyre at my first show, well, Sean, what do you think about my knives? And he would probably destroy my table. He would have said, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is bad. And if you don't see it, uh, most of the makers, they know what they made. They know what's wrong with their knives, okay? And if you know what you did right, if you know what you did wrong, but... I say, just ask to a knife maker that's going to be brutally honest with you, okay? Yeah. That's going to make you a lot better knife maker than asking and somebody saying, yeah, it looks good. Yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy. I'll be fine. Yeah. And like, just what you're saying there, mate, it's, um, I've had Sean look at my knives a number of times down in Melbourne, mm-hmm. and, you, and you get your notepad out, and you get your pencil out, yeah. and he's, he's, like I said, he's honest, he's tough. And he doesn't yes. pull any he doesn't pull any punches, but he doesn't do it in a way that's rude or insulting. He just says, oh. This thing needs fixing, this needs fixing, here's yep. how you look at this, consider this, do this. And then you write that shit down and you take it home and you cry in your fucking hands and then you go, Fuck, all right, let's do what he said. And then you do it, and you go back the next time if you see that same person and you go, Oh, I've I've tried those things you said and then they'll go Great, they look really, really good. Now, the next level that you got to look at fixing stuff up is this. So it's constructive feedback. But if you're not prepared to get constructive feedback and find out what's wrong with your knives, don't ask anyone. Yeah. That's the safest bet. And you know, when, when Sean was pointing out those things or any other maker, 80% of the stuff, you were aware of it, right? Yeah. If he was, t- <clears throat> yeah, it's the stuff like, oh, dude, the line doesn't match up here. You knew it, and you're like, ah, nobody will notice it. But deep inside, you already know that. Yeah. It's not like or, he's telling you something that you never thought about. Like, oh, there's a fucking so much gap that I can put my finger in there, and you guard. You're like, oh, I didn't see that. No shit, mm-hmm. you saw that. That's it. Or oh, there's a scratch here. If, mm-hmm. if you think you can see a scratch, I'll tell you what, the trained eye is going to definitely see it. Yes. And, and then you're going to be in the shit. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Corin, what do you do? You, I see you have a book in front of you. What is that? What you got? Penthouse. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, that's why your hand is pulling up. In the- <laughs> I thought he was hand sanding. <laughs> I'm polishing, mate. Polishing. It's different. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just looking through this book, wondering if we read another history piece out of um, Keith Spencer's book this week. Yeah. 
Yeah, we, we got a lot of positive feedback about that article that you read, the first one. Um, and I think it's a very intriguing topic for people to listen to. And they get a chance to stop listening to Mert and I talk shit to each other for 10 seconds or more. Fuck you, Kev. Oh, yeah, fuck yeah. You, Kev. Nice. Um, I've been waiting. There's plenty of options here, but you guys both know Murray Lanthus? Uh, I know of him, but I don't know him. If you ever go to Adelaide Knife Show, Murray's been there every year for the past however many years, and he basically started in 1973. Great year, that. And he is... A bit of a legend down there. He's all smiles. He's just a lovely guy. Great person to talk to. He makes working knives, if I can put it that way. But they're different. They're different to what everyone else is doing. And he's an interesting character. And I've just flicked through the book and seen a piece written about him back in 1997. Let's hear it. This was written 23 years ago. Murray Lanthus. And it's by Keith Spencer from the book Edgemaster 50 Australian Knife Stories. There aren't too many people about the place whom we can refer to as legends in their own lifetime in any field of endeavour. But South Australian knife maker Murray Lanthus comes close. A renowned blade maker with a great sense of humour and thoroughly respected in the industry. Murray was fashioning bladeware at a time when many modern day makers were kicking the ends of their cradles. His uniquely handcrafted knives graced the cover of the Shooter's Journal in December 1975. That's more than two decades ago. Well, actually, that's 40 years ago now. So 1975, boys. So 45 years ago. Uh, and he's still, you'll still see him every year at Adelaide Show. Never one for drifting into the realms of art fantasy-type knives, and although Murray has produced some delightful collectibles from time to time, the fact is his knives are practical and functionally reliable, fair dinkum workers. In addition to general outdoor bladeware, Murray designs and engineers field combat and stranded survival style knives for specialist users and adventurers whose lives may depend upon a readily accessible and reliable knife. Knife carriage as we know is most important. The quality of Murray's sheaths is equal to that of the knives they house. He learned to leathercraft from his father who spent many years working as a station hand in the outback. A nice sheaf com combination by Lanthos is distinctive, being crafted from top grain cowhide and the emphasis on workmanship and minimal embellishment. Murray's trademark is also distinctive, MBL, inside the outline of a .44 Magnum cast six-gun bullet. And he proudly refers to himself as a six-gunner. Murray has carved his mark as a practical pistol shooter over the years. In a 1975 Shooter's Journal article, which was compiled by Pat Brown, Murray commented, Styles are dictated by the customer as it is a custom knife, but there are trends in hunting knife design mainly dictated by USA knife makers that have an influence in this country. To a large extent, this is still true but Australian knife making has advanced considerably in the 22 years. Brown wound up his article by saying, It is a pleasure to see such high quality craftsmanship originating in this country, where the scene is dominated by overseas offerings. Mark our words, you will hear a lot more of Lanthus knives. Indeed we have. Mr Brown had no way of knowing how far the high quality craftsmanship would spread, 
For example, hot off the press, I've been informed by new breed New South Wales maker of Fantasy Blades, Paul Maffey, that an American dealer, collector, purchased from him a three-piece Damascus blade fantasy sword for well into the five-figure bracket. Congratulations, Paul. But I wonder where we would be without the blokes who paved the path to where we now stand in Australian custom-crafted knives. I mean blokes like George Lee Sai, Ben Cohen, Murray Lanthus, and Wally Bidgood. Wally, like Murray, still attends knife shows, who were established knife makers in the 70s. Now, that says there that Wally still attends knife shows. I think it's been about three years since I've seen Wally at a knife show. Um, but the rumour has it he's still making. So this is now, what, 23 years later, Wally Bidgood's still around. I'm not familiar with Ben Cohen and... George Lee Sai was one of the first custom knife makers in Australia and actually worked with Bob Loveless, so he goes back some time. Anyway, and there were others, most of whom no longer make knives, yet nevertheless contribute to the developing Australian knife industry along the way. What a privilege it must be for a new maker to be allocated as splay table alongside Murray or Wally, makers who did it tough in the fledgling years of custom knife making in the modern era that is, since the mid-60s, when the Australian cutlery manufacturing firms were petering out of existence, leaving a void that continues to be filled by the cottage industry created by crafters of custom cutlery. Murray made his first knife from 01 steel in 1973, borrowing his cousin's bandsaw to profile the blank, which he then ground to shape using a 6-inch bench grinder belonging to a local service station. He hand-finished the knife, a four-inch utility, with files and emery sheets, and fitted a grip of Wondu, which is a Western Australian hardwood. I learned an important piece of advice from Murray concerning your first knife, which I have passed on to hundreds of Tyro makers via the Australian Knife Collectors Club. For your first knife, select a simple design. Handcraft it from smallish, slimish steel and work slowly. Alternatively, as Murray suggests, it may not be sensible to try making a big bowie type out of a large lump of metal at the start, or otherwise you might break your heart filing for hours and never ever finish the job. The philosophy behind bench making early knives entirely by hand, without the use of power tools, is to cultivate in the novice knife maker an understanding of knife ethos and to allow the concept created to unfold more slowly and take shape in the hands of the burgeoning artisan. Most of the best knife makers I've come across produce their first knives purely by hand. You can't help but like Murray when you meet him. He laughs a lot and loves a good joke, but don't be fooled. He has a serious side too, and for many years he has worked as a security officer. He is ever vigilant and pretty quick for his age, and quite capable of coping with changing circumstances. The serious side of this man's man reflects in the practical aspects of the knives he crafts, which to the untuned eye may at times appear somewhat unconventional. Murray, though, does nothing without a valid reason. Anyone taking the time to listen whilst he explains a concept will come away from the conversation more enlightened about cutlery craft than before meeting with him. He reasons, thinks, things through to logical conclusion and never loses sight of the intended purpose of his edged creations. 
Like any good football team which has in its ranks players of experience to provide stability and guidance to those around them when things get out of hand, so too does the Australian custom knife-making industry have a handful of elders, long-term makers, to whom we can look for wisdom when setting goals for the future, and Murray Lanthus is one of them. Well, that's a great piece. I haven't read that before. And I've got to tell you, I've known Murray since I uh, met him in 2013 and I always enjoy catching up with him at Adelaide Knife Show. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I just had to think about it while you were reading that and it was like, I, I do recall I do recall Murray quite well, actually, yes. Got a big bellowing laugh and he's always joking about something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good guy. Kind of, kind of loud. <laughs> Fit, fits the mould pretty well. <laughs> You know, considering the guy's been making now for forty-five years, so he leaves us all for dead. Yeah, I was born. I was born in seventy-three. Yeah, that's why I say. That's why I commented. What a great year it is, you know. Yeah, right. And, and, and you start thinking about that, and like, you know, these guys. Yeah, they've just been around forever. It's that's crazy. Well, Adelaide Knife Show is about to go up in price because you know Knife Art Association's taking it on. That means that there'll be a lot of money spent on a good venue. There'll be a lot of money spent on proper promotion and advertising, and there'll be literally thousands of people will come through the doors. And I'm just hoping that guys like Murray, the older guys, uh, can see the value in still coming. So, yeah, that'll be uh, that'll be interesting. Yeah, look, you know, we've heard heard some grumblings along the on the grapevine about oh, the price is going to go up and everything. I mean, you just nailed it. Yes, it's going to go up because we're going to provide a world-class venue. We're going to advertise the shit out of it. Um, we're hopefully going to get, you know, thousands more people or, or heaps more people through the doors. But we're still going to hold some of the values of that show or most of the values of that show. Uh, we're still going to hold ourselves to that because it's a show that works for a reason. Uh, it's a good show. No question about it. You know, it was just... I. Myself and plenty of other people that love that show missed out this year because there was there were no tables. It sold out way too fast. It, it's outgrown the venue and it needs it needs a new home. And we're going to do that. Hopefully, we're going to do it really well too. We we seem to do all right with our shows now. Our process of getting the shows up and running, you know, it's proving itself over and over. So we need if the Adelaide guys are listening to this, we need you to come along and support. The Adelaide show at its new venue, uh, the Knife Art Association. Uh, you know, we're working with you to give you the best show possible. Absolutely. Not sparing the expense. Not sparing the expenses. Yeah. Speaking of shows, what have we got coming up, guys? So, symposium. <coughs> symposiums next week. Symposium coming up. Yeah. Yep. Symposiums coming up. All too fast. Um, then we've got the well, Kyle Roy is doing a. Uh, course, which is sold out, sold out pretty much record time. Uh, then we got the Queensland Knife Show at a new venue too in Ipswich um, on the first weekend in April. I think it's the looking at my calendar. It's the third and uh, sorry, the fourth and fifth of April. Yeah, I'm going to that one. I've got to drive the truck up. Yeah, nice. I'm heading up, taking row up my wife, and we're going to spend a couple of days up in Queensland with my family and then do the show and see what happens. Yeah, looking forward to that one, actually. Then there's the Melbourne Guild Show, first weekend in May, which is uh, Melbourne's knife show. Yep. That's 
started the promotion for that's been kicking off in the last few weeks and if you follow the australian knife makers guild pages on facebook you'll find uh you'll find all the information about it and you'll see a lot of the maker profiles they've been putting up profiles of all the um, guild members are you in the guild Mert? i'm a probationary member but i haven't paid my dues for this year ah speaking of that yeah you probably should fix them up the agm's coming up so yeah Get, get yourself paid up and and kev is as well yeah so you guys have you put in a put in a profile about yourselves have you seen that on on the guild's facebook page yeah seen it i'm waiting until i'm waiting for the rush to go through <laughs> in other words no i haven't done it yet <laughs> oh, fucking hurry up you too Mert. yeah <laughs> you know yeah. I'll, I'll put on the list of shit that i need to get done along with the 500 uh. others you just sit there and touch yourself, mate. I'll make it up, mate. You just give me a couple of pictures I can use and I'll just tell everyone the story. I'll make the rest up. It'll be fine. I love it. Yeah, I'll put a bit of spin on it. He's shaking his head at me. Fair enough. That's angry eyes. He's a bit like that. Kind of looks like Mr. But No, I won't say it. It's a little bit antisocial. He is. Too much yes, time I am. I'm an introvert, just in case you didn't notice. All right, well, that takes us through to May. So, yeah, make sure you're at those shows, guys. And if you are at any of those shows where we're at, um, be sure and stop by and say hello and you know, give us your shirt ideas so that we can get a shirt and that would be cool actually. Has anyone got a shirt design yet? Darren, you've got, you got a one. whole lot of shirts. You got a whole lot of shirts to take to the symposium apparently. I hope you keep it on top of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for the Facebook promotion thing that we had. Yes. We had a little we had a little thing, leave a review for us and, and put it up on Facebook. There was only five people who officially entered, so those five people got shirts. Good on them too. Yeah, cheers. They're awesome. Yeah, all the rest of you fucking Thank bludgers you. that just talk shit and don't help yeah, us out. Get oh, on it's a shocker. Give us give us a give us a boost. Come on, help us. How good how good's a competition where everyone wins a prize? Fuck. Unbelievable. And five people entered. Yeah, well, we had five shirts, yeah. so it was just worked out. Yeah, worked out. If we had six, we would have had to. Leave. Someone would have missed out. Yeah, paper, rock, scissors. <laughs> yeah, solves all problems. So, yeah, so that's the upcoming events. Oh, Blade, you guys booked your tickets? Not yet. Yeah, any good deals going around? Have you been looking? No, nah, haven't even started looking. I've just got notice uh, in my emails that my Esther now needs renewing. For some crazy reason, I thought it went for five years, but it only goes for two. No, oh, mine only doing two then. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. Check check your spam and junk files because I did mine about March last year, and it um yeah the renewals already come through, so I'll give better get on that. Yeah, I'm just looking at flights at the moment, so we've gone out to a couple of um companies to try and get the the flights I got last year, which were twelve hundred bucks, but I'm not pulled anywhere near that this year. Yeah, fair enough. What are you doing? Are you just yeah. going? Are you doing pre blade show? stuff in the u.s or yeah we're gonna we're gonna go and go to california or anybody that's going if you want to go through la on the tuesday night before where we're having a little bit of a gamaco party in a little town called crestline up in the mountains uh north of la so if you want to turn up there you'd be most welcome it's at the bear claw saloon in crestline and yeah probably the tuesday night but get in touch with me if you're going to be in LA, it's the best place to stay. Sleepy Hollow cabins up there, or the or the lakeside, they're both pretty good. Yeah, right. That's a nice nice invitation. Yeah, I don't think anyone will come. But fuck, if we took <laughs> over the bar, there's only twelve seats, so fucking. Yeah, right. If we, yeah, we we could easily take over the, all the locals, mate. Eight o'clock in the morning, it's open, and they're already drinking all the locals. So God yeah, love them. Right. 
But yeah, Crestline, top place, Bearclaw Saloon, we'll be there. You, know, you can count on it. Uh, after that, we go and start drinking at, yeah, at Atlanta. We'll get in on the Wednesday night, push through till the Monday. On the Monday, we're going to probably go to Oklahoma. And I've got a, uh, a major gas industry supplier there that I've got to uh, go and have a few words with. And then we'll probably duck in and see Jance and maybe drive down to Texas and pick up a few down there as well. We haven't sort of locked it in, but that's probably what we're going to do. Yeah, nice. Well, you're going over early too, Matt, aren't you? At yeah, this yeah, because of the Damas Steel show, which is two weeks prior to the Blade, and I'm trying to go to Damas Steel show and hope to meet my family in Atlanta. So hopefully it'll be a family trip this time. Awesome. Let's I'm try. not sure. Like I said, I'm not sure of my travel plans over there yet, but I will definitely be at Blade uh, on at, at the very least on the Wednesday night uh, before Blade show, and then whatever plans we have following that are normally. Um, we work out when we're flying out, you know, probably a couple of weeks before we'll send out a message to the usual group traveling and say, this is when we're leaving and this is when we're arriving wherever. And then I'll spend another few weeks in the US bumming around, getting turning an alcoholic and shooting guns and making shit. <laughs> and I fucking love it. <laughs> Good fun. If you do get a chance to go to Vegas, yeah, that that's pretty cool to shoot the fucking machine guns and stuff there. So that Bren gun was awesome. Yeah. I I don't really need to go to Vegas to do that. I've got a lot of friends up north <laughs> with uh with with sort of guns that I'm looking at going, yeah, you why? But I'm fucking happy to shoot it. <laughs> well, you yeah. know, we can always uh, we'll always accept an invitation, Kev, so you know. Yeah, you going to Dunkley's? Have you booked that one? <laughs> yeah, I'll be I'll be up at Rick's again. I think it, it's either on the same weekend or as Rick's or the same weekend as the Big Sky show. Uh, Josh Smith is also having a massive hammering up in Montana. He's not far from, oh, you know, a couple of hours away from what I believe from where Rick is. And Josh Josh Smith is having this massive hammering. So hammer-ins in Australia, you know, everyone in Australia, hammer-ins in Australia uh, pretty much hands-on events where you go and fuck around with stuff. A hammer-in in the US is a, it's much like our symposium. It, it's a, you know, theory-based uh, exercise. And, you know, you can only imagine, like I said, you know, you get mind-blown by the calibre of guests that come along to present. In Australia, we've got a, a, you know, a good depth of talent, but in America you have just, the cream on top of master smiths that come to these things and freely give their information to people is just fucking amazing. Yeah. So where do you find out about Josh? Josh's one? Uh, I follow him on Instagram. I met him last year at Rick Dunkley's and then I follow him on Instagram and we, we chat together. Um, Alex Steele Co is sponsoring his event. Uh, so Alex and uh, Will Stelter will be up there. Two good little boys in the industry. <laughs> yes. So that's all coming up way too fast, though. Like, there's not enough. There's not enough. It doesn't seem to be enough hours in a day and enough days in a week at the moment to get everything done that needs doing. But we'll push through. It's all good. Yeah, fair call. Guys, my battery is five percent. How about my my phone? My dying seconds. Right. Okay, no worries. Um, just a shout out for the young fella Seth Fox eighteen. That was the guy that I was uh, thinking of before. Yeah, he's a pretty. If you follow him on Instagram, Seth Fox. 18 
And yeah, nice bloke. We give him a forge burner and a, and a block of wood, and hopefully he comes a long way. So yeah, nice. Yeah, certainly got some uh, interesting uh, stuff on his Instagram, particularly if you're into marksmanship and target shooting. Seems that he's uh, uh, very very good at that. Yeah, cool. Um, I want to give a shout out to on Instagram. His name is Red Five Forge. He's another one of the people out there in the world that listen to our podcast. And he is from uh, the UK, as far as I believe. Red five is in the number. Yeah, red number five forge, all one, all one word. Uh, so he sent me a message just telling me how much he enjoys the podcast and stumbled across it. There was a lot of laughs about how um, we conduct ourselves, and yeah, he's only been making knives for a few years, but he's doing a good job. So shout out to you, mate. Yeah, good on you for listening. Tell you, tell all your other pommy bastard mates and. Get them on board. We like it. And also, um, while I'm on the topics of shout-out, and I've mentioned his name a couple of times, shout-out to Bill Burke, you big cunt, mate, <laughs> if you're listening. And if you're not listening, you should listen. Uh, we will be seeing you very soon. Condition the liver now, mate. Condition the liver now. <laughs> Looks like, are you still with us, Mert? Or is it just paused and... Nah. I think, I think Mert's gone. Oh, well. Fuck him. So I was... Yeah, thanks, Mert, for talking about yourself today. It was, it was a good opportunity to learn a bit more about. We didn't ask him his shirt size. Oh, he's got to be a 3XL. Yeah, oh, <laughs> pushing five. <laughs> he's gone. Anyway. Mert just left the building. Thanks, everyone. Yes. Right up. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you uh, in a week or two when we get round to the next podcast. All right. Check. Ciao. Ciao.